We are uh, beginning just uh, today a, a kind of a standalone message called This is Vision Sunday. Uh, next week, I'm going to start a series. Uh, it's going to be called How We Got Here. And I'm going to focus on, over the next four weeks or so, the first kind of four stories of, in the book of Genesis and talk about stories of origin, stories of brokenness and redemption. And so we're going to hear about uh, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah's Ark, and the Tower of Babel. And I think it's going to be um, different. Uh, and so I'm hoping to extract some good things out of that there, but I think it's going to be really helpful for us. But today is Vision Sunday. Every fall, we have a Sunday in which we focus on the particular values and the particular identity that God has entrusted to us as a, as a congregation. We've been in existence for 32 years as a church. Uh, when, I, when our church started in 19, I was eight years old when our church started, and so I wasn't here. Uh, but uh, when I, for 32 years, we have sought to, to be a witness of what Jesus Christ can do uh, through people who give themselves uh, to him. And today, I want to just uh, uh, unpack our particular values and who God has called us to be. And so if this is your first time here, you could not have come on a better day because you're going to hear uh, the particularities of who we are as a church. And if, you're, uh, and if you've been coming for a long time, we want to invite you to deepen these values in your life as well. I chose 1 Peter 2.9. It's a famous Bible passage, but it also is a passage that reminds us of, of who God has called the church to be, the, the particular metaphors, the particular expressions of what we're called to be as the body of Christ. And so uh, we have it on the screen here if you don't, uh, if you don't have a Bible. But, so, but listen to the word of the Lord, 1 Peter 2.9. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, as we think about what it means to be your followers and be the body of Christ right here in Queens, give us illumination and revelation. Lord, speak to us. Open our ears that we may hear what you want us to hear. Open our eyes that we may see what you want us to see. And open our hearts that we would receive every gift you have for us this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Our mission as a church is to be a multiracial community deeply transforming lives through Jesus for the sake of the world. And that's been our mission for 32 years. We've worded it differently from time to time, but at the core of who we are as a community are people who encounter the risen Jesus, experience transformation in our lives, and out of that place to offer transformation to the world around us. That God wants to deeply transform us beneath the surface. Which is why, as a church, our logo is an iceberg. The logo of our church is an iceberg. And the reason it's an iceberg is because an iceberg, as you know, 10% of the iceberg is visible. 90% of an iceberg typically is not seen with the eye. And what God wants to do is transform us not on the surface. God wants to transform us deep beneath the surface of our lives, which is to say that God is not just after your behavior modification. God is after your transformation. I say that because you can have a lot of behavior modification, but not experience transformation. And what to, to be in the, in the hands of Jesus is not just to have some behavior modification, it's to experience the full depth of transformation in our lives. And that's the goal of, what, of, of being a church. That's the goal of following Jesus. The goal of following Jesus is that our lives would be consumed by his love and transformed and conformed into his image. And this is why we exist as a church. So that, we, that week, week in and week out, that day in and day out, our church together and our lives individually will be more formed by Jesus and his love and his power and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we exist as a church, to, to offer transformation to the world out of which we continue to bear witness to his kingdom. That's the fundamental identity of who we are. 
And when we look at 1 Peter today, Peter is giving some language to explain what the church is to be. He's giving language and different metaphors to describe what the body of Christ is to be in the world. And I love the words that Peter uses to describe the church. Peter says, you are a chosen people, a chosen people. You you didn't choose God. God chose you. You didn't find God. God found you. God was never lost. We were lost. God came and found us. You are a chosen people. And I love that God chooses us. We're not always chosen. We're not always chosen on the baseball and basketball field. We're not always chosen at the workplace. We're not always chosen in the school. We're not always chosen in the neighborhood. But no matter who you are, God has chosen you. He says you are a chosen people. Beyond being a chosen people, Peter continues with the metaphors. He says you are, in addition to that, a royal priesthood. Which is to say, you may, you may never go to Buckingham Palace, but, but, but there's royalty in your blood. You, you, may, you, never, you might never wear a crown or have a scepter, but there's royalty in your blood. You are a royal priesthood. A priest is someone who who brings other people to God. A priest is someone who offers mercy. And when Peter says you are a royal priesthood, he says in our individual lives and in our lives together as a family, we, we are called to bring people to God, to offer mercy to the world. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. But he continues. He says, in addition to that, you are a holy nation. That is, we operate according to a different kind of constitution. We, we operate by a different kind of way of understanding power. That we operate by a different set of principles. You are a holy nation. He continues, you are God's special possession. That you individually and us collectively, we are God's special possession. That, that the church belongs to God. And we need to be reminded of that on a regular basis, that the church belongs to God. The the church doesn't belong to the Republican Party. Uh, The church doesn't belong to the Democratic Party. The church doesn't belong to the Independent Party, to the Green Party, the Tea Party, the Coffee Party, the House Party, whatever party there is. The church belongs to God. Amen. Amen. And we better remember that as this year progresses and the next year comes along. The church belongs to God. We are God's special possession. That word special possession is often translated, we are God's peculiar people. That the church, we, we are supposed to be different. We are to be a species of its own kind. That there's nothing like the church. That when we gather together here in Queens, 75 nations represented from all different walks of life, worshiping Jesus Christ, we are a peculiar people, a species of its own kind. There's nothing like this in the world. We are God's special possession. And to be God's special possession means that we are called to bear witness to this God in this world in a peculiar, particular way. That if our lives are going to bear witness to Jesus and the kingdom of God, we, we, need, to, we need a large enough framework to follow him in the world. We need a set of values that anchor us and who God has called us to be to show people who Jesus is. And so this, to that end, I want to talk about a particular framework of who God has called us to be as a peculiar people here in Queens, that God has entrusted to us particular values, a particular way of following Jesus in this world. And every church has a particular grace on it, which is why you should never compare churches. Every church has a particular grace, a particular people, and a particular context, and a particular history, and a particular neighborhood that God has entrusted. And God has entrusted to us a particular grace here in Queens. And we are called to follow Jesus in this particular way. We call this grace, we call this charism, uh, we call it our five M's, our particular values. A particular framework that we're called to hold together as we follow Jesus in this world. 
Now, as I thought about our, our, this Vision Sunday, as I thought about our particular values, these five M's, I thought about an image that I came across earlier this year. Actually, I saw it with my own eyes. I went to the San Francisco area, and my family and I, we, we, we went to this camp. I was speaking at this church, and, and it was a camp that was surrounded by, by redwood trees. And if you've never seen redwood trees, it is a sight to behold. I, I was in awe as I was just in this, and, in, in the, and I'm not a woods person, okay? I'm, I'm a city guy, okay? I, I'm very skeptical of the woods, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, but, but, but I was in the, in the woods just looking up, and, and these trees would go up 200, 300, 400 feet in the air. To give some context, some of these trees were taller than a 37-story building, to give you some context. Just think about a 37-story building, and these trees would, be, would, would, would soar high into the sky beautifully. What I would find in, in, in my research and, and discover was, although these trees go up 200, 300, 400 feet in the air, what's interesting is, is their roots don't go as deep into the ground as that. And so I was puzzled by it. How is it that a tree can have that much stability going up 200, 300, 400 feet in the air but not have the corresponding roots that go down super deep into the ground. And so I started to do some research, some simple research. And what I, what I discovered was even though this, the roots of the redwood trees do not go necessarily deep into the ground, that they are part of a root system. A root system that, that the, tr- the, the roots expand almost 100 feet horizontally under the ground and attaches itself to other roots. So much so that because of this root system, uh, these trees are able to rise up high in the sky. And as I thought about that, I thought about two things about our church as it pertains to this this image of these redwood trees. That that if we're going to soar high into the sky as individuals, as followers of Jesus, as the church, we can't do it alone. We need a system. We need a root system. We need some stability. You can't follow Jesus in isolation and expect to soar high into the sky. You need a community around you. You need brothers and sisters. You need friends on the journey. You need a root system to hold you stable. That if we're going to soar high, we need a root system. But beyond just a community, beyond just a root system in that way, I thought about our particular values, our five M's. That if we're going to bear witness to Jesus in a world that is increasingly uh, hostile and increasingly polarized, increasingly trying to pull us away from the center, we need a particular set of values that, that when held together, enable us to bear witness to Jesus. And that root system is our five M's, the particular values that God has entrusted to us that we're called to wrestle with. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to underscore these five values And I'm telling you ahead of time that there's a lot coming at you, but this is kind of like uh, the showcase of who who God has called us to be. You know, every year Apple comes out with some new features to the phone and some upgrades, okay? I'm giving you some ancient stuff here, okay? Nothing new here, okay? But I'm giving you some ancient stuff that has held the church together for years and what God has entrusted to us as a church. The first value, the first part of the root system is what we call our monastic value, our monastic value. And by monastic, is probably a word you don't use often. It's a word very simply that means that our lives are marked by slowing down to be with God. Slowing down to be with God. That is, in the city that never sleeps, in a world that is full of noise, we are called as the people of God to slow down our lives to be with God. And this is not an easy thing to do. Our lives are to be marked by deep prayer, a deep seeking of God. Our lives are to be marked by having Holy Scripture shape our imagination, shape our hearts. We are called to slow down to be with God. And we must slow down to be with God. Because unless we slow down to be with God, we don't have a prayer in this world to live faithfully to God in this world. I think about Jesus and how Jesus would, with consistency, pull his disciples away to solitude and to silence and in prayer. 
They would be involved in all kinds of work, and then Jesus would see them, and he'd pull them away to get alone in prayer and in solitude and in silence. And as I thought about why Jesus would pull them away, it made sense that Jesus would pull his disciples away for at least three reasons. If they were not pulled away, they would have died of exhaustion, or they would have given up following him altogether, or they would have become addicted to their work. Three very real temptations that we face. Dying of exhaustion because your body can't take it, saying later for this Jesus guy, or become addicted to activity. And yet Jesus consistently pulls them away to let them know your identity is not in what you do. Your fundamental identity is in your relationship with God. That's why we're called to be a monastic community, slowing down to be with God. Now, this is hard in this city. It's hard everywhere, but let me focus on New York City for a moment. There was a wonderful book called In Praise of Slowness, In Praise of Slowness. And in this book, the author uh, talks about a man named John Gerdner, that in 1901, John Gerdner coined a phrase. And the phrase he coined was New York-itis, New York-itis. In 1901, he came up with this phrase called New York-itis. And this is what he said about New York-itis. He said, New York-itis describes an illness whose symptoms include edginess, quick movements, and impulsiveness. It's a disease which affects a large percentage of the inhabitants of Manhattan Island. And the symptoms, moreover, includes fatigue, anger, irritability, and being overworked. Anyone has New York-itis in the house here? Anyone New York-itis? Yeah? I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. New York-itis. 1901! talking about fatigue. 1901, talking about overworked. 1901, talking about anger, irritability. I mean, what were they doing in 1901? (laughs) Now, if that's New York-itis in 1901, what are we in 2019? Uh, Someone gave me a a medical term. I can't even, I don't know what it was, but it's worse than New York-itis. We are called to be a monastic community, slowing down our lives to be with God. And it is out of that place of slowing down our lives that we move into the next value, which is our emotional health value. God has called us to be a community that values emotional health. Now, for those of you who are new to our congregation, I know I said five M's. I know it does not begin with an M, but work with me, okay? Just, 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 just work with me. Emotional health. By emotional health, we're talking about what does it mean to love well? What does it mean to love yourself and love others well, love God well? When we talk about emotional health, we're, we're talking about what does a life looks like, look like that lives with integrity, that lives integrated, that lives uh, with, 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 with the value of interiority, that there is a world beneath the surface of our lives that often people don't know about, that often we don't know about, that God wants to transform. We're often unaware of what's happening on the inside of our lives, unable to deal with the feelings and the trauma and the family history and the messages that we have internalized. How do we go beneath the surface of our own lives to live a life of interiority so that we do not capsize in this world? When I think about that, I think about a particular image that comes to mind. Every now and then when I'm home, And sitting on the couch, like many of you do, I channel surf. And when I channel surf, I'm looking for a particular movie to watch. And inevitably, whenever a movie that I like comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing and I watch. When Shawshank Redemption comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing and I watch. When Lord of the Ring comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing and I watch. When Hitch comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing (laughs) and I watch. But there's another movie that when it comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing and I watch, and it's, it's Titanic. Whenever Titanic comes on, yeah, I'm confessing that. Whenever Titanic <laughs> comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing and I watch. When I watch Titanic, it comes on on TNT a lot. When I watch Titanic, um, I'm struck by the contrast on the boat, on the ship. That, that it, it's a story of two different kinds of people. 
It's a story of, of, of opulence and poverty. On the, on the upper deck of the ship, there is abundance, there is wealth, there is opulence, there is celebration, there is festivity, there's food, there's wine. There's just so much wonderful things happening on the upper deck of the ship. But you contrast that when you watch it, you see that on the, on the lower deck of the ship, there's a lot of poverty, a lot of chaos. There's, they don't have what the people on the upper deck have. And, and, and a couple of days after it sets out to sea, the Titanic hits an iceberg. And whatever chaos is already existing on the lower deck of the ship only intensifies. Because the waters start coming in into the, the ship. Now what's happening, interesting, is it's such a contrast. Because although there's chaos on the lower decks of the ship, the people on the upper deck have no clue about it. They're celebrating. There's festivity. They're still toasting each other. But, but the, the waters are still rising to the surface. They have no uh, clue about it. And they're still dancing and celebrating. And as the movie goes on, minute after minute, hour it was a long movie, hour after hour, <laughs> the waters come up so much so that, I don't want to spoil it, uh, uh, that, that, that the, the Titanic, I'm going to spoil it, the Titanic just sinks. You should know this by now, by the way. <laughs> While I'm at it, uh, Darth Vader is Luke's father, okay? Uh, <laughs> the Sixth Sense, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, okay? <laughs> the, whole, the whole movie, he was, he was dead, okay? You had 20 years for that one, too. The, the issues of the lower deck rise to the surface. And what we have to be mindful of when we gather as the people of God, it often, we, we come, we celebrate, we're singing, it all looks so wonderful. And yet there's stuff beneath the surface of our lives that sooner or later we find ourselves capsized. And so what do we mean when we say this is a value of ours? Well, it means that we pay attention to our feelings in our emotional life. We pay attention to the ways our families of origin has shaped us, often destructively. We pay attention to our reactions and our triggers and the messages that we have internalized. We pay attention to the trauma that has so uh, uh, formed and, and shaped our lives. We pay attention to our limits and cultivate self-care. This is a value of ours, that, that for the sake of loving well, we look beneath the surface of our lives. That's our second value. We are a monastic community. We are a community that values emotional health. But let me continue to our third value. And as I preach this, I want you to be listening. Lord, what are you saying to me? What, what comes out? What, what's my next step? The third value is a value called marriage to Christ. Now, we use this value and we articulate this value because marriage is one of the best metaphors we have in the scriptures that help us understand our relationship to God. And when we talk about marriage at New Life, we're minimally talking about three things. We're talking about living out our married lives out of marriage to Christ. That if you're married, you're not just here to survive. Marriage is hard and we're, we're to move beyond just surviving as a married couple. That God has called you to so deepen your love for each other as a married couple that, that your very life, your very love together is an icon, is a window into God's dimension of reality. That when people see married love, they go, oh, oh, you're showing me something of God's love. And so at New Life, we talk about having marriages that are deeply formed by God's love, deeply shaped by God's spirit. The marriage to Christ value is about us having marriages that go beyond just surviving, that go beyond just living as roommates, that we are intimate partners living out of loving union from God and offering ourselves as a gift to the world. When we talk about marriage to Christ, we're talking about singleness, a particular way of being single in the world, that we don't have a two-tiered thing in some churches, the married people all up here and the single people just get the scraps. But as the people of God, we're saying, no, no, no. It's not just about marriage. In your, if you're single, you're called to live a robust, abundant life following Jesus wherever you're at. Amen. And do remember that Jesus was single. Do remember the apostle Paul was single. And there, there's no two-tiered spirituality here. But what does it mean to have a life as a single person? 
that is full and abundant and rich. And you're not just thinking, I need to hold on until God brings me somebody. Now, if that's your prayer, I pray God brings you somebody. But that somebody is not going to fulfill the deepest longings of your soul. Okay, I, I know Jerry Maguire said, you complete me, uh, 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 but that's not quite theologically accurate, okay? Only God can complete you. Only God can fulfill you. Only God can make you who you are really called to be. And so how do we have a theology that moves beyond just hold on for dear life and don't do anything dumb? There's got to be something more. When we talk about marriage to Christ, we're talking about the integration of our sexuality and our spirituality. That at New Life, we're talking about all these things. In a given year, we're talking about this. We're talking about our bodies. We're talking about our sexuality. We're talking about our spirituality, which is why I, I got to get a sign in the front of our building that says, enter at your own risk. If you come into this church, enter at your own risk, because we're going to invite you to consider certain things. And maybe rethink certain things for the sake of God transforming every aspect of your life. All of us come into this church sexually broken. We all have a sexual past, all have sexual history, all have sexual brokenness. How do we now submit our lives to God and in a loving community find the wholeness that our souls deeply long for, marriage to Christ? That's our third value. Our fourth value is that we are a missional community. And by missional, it, it is us trying to hold on the tensions of being a monastery on one end, monastic, being with God in prayer, and being on the mission field in the other. And God is calling us to hold both together. Our lives are not just about prayer and being alone with God, nor are our lives just about being on mission. We're trying to hold them all together. And to be missional essentially means this. God is calling you to be sent into the world to be a gift. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Whenever you look at Jesus, let me say it this way, wherever Jesus went, he lived like he was sent. He knew that the Father had sent him. And wherever you go, the same is to apply. That if you belong to Jesus Christ, he is sending you to your workplace, sending you to your school, sending you into your neighborhood. For what? To bear witness to his love. To show people there is a God who exists and a God who has died for us, a God who rules and reigns, and our very lives are to give expression to that. As a church, we're called to be missional, which is why down we have a community development corporation. That if you go downstairs to the lobby area, in the back of our building, we have a health center in which we serve over 2,000 people a year with dental services and medical services and pediatric services and social work services, that we're trying to serve those who are on the margins of society, those who are often under-resourced and overlooked, that God has called us to, 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 to live alongside those who are poor and marginalized to serve them, to steward our gifts for the sake of those who society often overlooks. This is why we have a heart for immigrants and refugees. God has called us to be on mission in the world. This is why we have after-school programs and English as a second language. And all, why? Because God has called us to be sent into the world. That you have a gift and God has entrusted you with certain things, not just for our own benefit, but that the world around us would benefit from it. Which is why, as a church family, what it, I want it to be said of us that if our doors ever closed, that the neighborhood will be knocking on our door saying, please stay open. You're too good for our community. And when a church only exists for itself, it, it ceases to be the church. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the church is only the church when it exists for others. And we are called to be sent out into the world. That's why we gather. A question you need to be asking is, Lord, am I living as a sent person? Am I, am I living using my gifts to serve? To serve children, to serve high school students, to serve the poor, to serve families. Lord, am I living as a sent person? Am I activating the gifts you've given me? If you belong to Jesus, he's entrusted you with gifts, experiences, skills. Are you using that for the blessing of others? That's our missional value. And here's our fifth one. Our final M 
part of this root system is that we're called to be a multiracial community. Now, what we mean by that is that we're called to bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. Bridging racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. And to be part of this community is not an easy thing at all. In one sense, it's incredibly beautiful. You look around, there's so much diversity in this room. But we know that God has called us to be more than just a diverse church. What makes us special is not that there's a lot of different people who look different sitting in the same space. You get that on the subway too. And the church is more, could be, to be more than a sanctified subway car in which there's a crowd of anonymous, diverse people in close proximity to each other. You get that at the mall. You get that at the stadium. What makes us different is more than just us sitting together looking different. What makes us different is we are called to be a new kind of family that bears witness to justice in the world, that bears witness to reconciliation in the world, that bears witness to healing in the world. And to do that in this space is not an easy thing. Our congregation has over 75 nations that are represented. National Geographic at one point called this zip code the most diverse zip code in the world. At Elmhurst Hospital, 123 languages are spoken. To go to, go to the Chase Bank and, and try to take out $20 from the ATM, uh, it's about 25 options. It's complicated. I'm like, which one? Here we, where, where are we? Whenever problems happen in different parts of the world, we feel it in our congregation. When something happens in the Philippines, we feel it. When something happens in Indonesia, we feel it. When something happens in Central America, we feel it. When something happens in Africa, we feel it. We have in our congregation Black Lives Matter protesters and Blue Lives Matter congregants. It's complicated. When the World Cup comes around, lots of drama in our church. And so how do we bear witness to Jesus in a world that is set on polarization, and a world that is set on racism, and a world that is, that is set on division. How do we bear witness to Jesus, not in a sappy kumbaya kind of way, but that we're being open and honest with the struggles of being who God made us in this world? We're called to be a multiracial community. Now, to live this out is very complicated, to do it well to move beyond the aesthetics, the surface diversity that we experience. And what I've come to understand in pastoring in this church for 11 years is that to talk about bridging racial realities is often very difficult. Whether it's in schools, whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in a marriage, it's often very difficult. How do you faithfully wrestle with this value wherever you're at? Well, I came across, there's a new life couple here who I believe have been wrestling with this really well. And I want to show you a five-minute video and let them do some preaching through their own story. Because to live out this value is very complicated. And there's many layers here. And we're called to hold together all the layers to bear witness to Jesus faithfully in this world. What does it mean to live out this value in a home as a married couple? I want to show you this video, and then after that, we'll take communion together. And so hit the lights, check out this video. I grew up in a place called Broadnax, Virginia. So there's about 329 people in my town. As best as I can understand, my last name comes from the people who owned us on my dad's side, from slavery. Segregation um, was a reality where I was from. I lived in that and encountered that de facto, like not by law, but by culture um, in Southern Virginia. So that's where I grew up. My mom is born and raised in Korea, um, but she is ethnically both Korean and Chinese. And my father uh, was raised in Taiwan. His family lived outside of uh, China for a really long time. They lived in Malaysia for about four, three, four generations. And um, originally, they're from an area in China called Fuzhou, so they're very proud to be from there. 
you know, when I um, started dating Jonathan, I told my mom about him. And I mean, I started with all the accolades. I was oh, yeah. like, this is the college he went to. This is, he's part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Best fellowship. He, you know, from the South. Uh, gentleman. Gentleman, <laughs> yes. Uh, and then after all that, he's like, what color is he? It's like, all right, cool. I'm just cut straight to it. <laughs> but um, yeah, we both probably grew up where yeah. that was more important. Then it should be. So when Ferguson happened, some black Americans were being killed. We started getting into some pretty tense conversations. But it was also difficult because we were not newly married, but we had been married for a few years and we were still trying to build this community. He wanted to go to all these protests and um, and we did. We went to a few together, but he wanted to go, he started to really prioritize going to these protests. There was definitely like a solidarity around it in the black community and it was bringing up so many emotions in you. Mm-hmm. I remember you like sitting there at the kitchen table and just kind of saying like, leave me alone. Here I was feeling disposable and my fear was that if I ask the woman who married me to do these things and she says no, then I then I will it, it will just confirm what's true for Eric Garner, confirm what's true for Michael Brown, confirm like that's also true for me. And then this huge question of like, what will our child look like? Will our child look more Asian? Will our child look more black? And then it was a boy, girl, and depending on all of those factors, we'll kind of shape our, our kids' fate, right, in this country. And I think that it took something that intimate, like being in my womb and um, for me to realize like, wow, I need to fight with my life, not just fight with my principles and values. So I wrote a letter to my family and um, uh, I was particularly speaking about like, would they, would they be willing to learn um, especially thinking about how they will have a niece um, or a nephew who may not look anything like them and yet will carry this burden of this this country's um, perspective on black Americans and carry the burden of this identity that that I wish they did not have to take. Um, and, um, and that was really scary for me because I'm constantly looking to reconcile with my own family and constantly in fear of being abandoned myself because of my own history with them. And so it, it took a lot for me to write that letter. And then, but then for you, you felt incredibly loved by that letter. My, my love for Jonathan and for, for our child, but my love for Jonathan needs to go above just values and principles to what Jesus did, which is die for his friends. Um, so what does it look like for me to do that, to, to have a more costly love? Well, you know my life it's in God's hands. Oh, you know my life it's in God's hands. Bridging different ethnicities and different gender and different classes uh, is important to me because um, they're all part of God's kingdom. So um, if I do not intentionally build relationships with people that are different from myself in all those categories, then I am neglecting parts of God's family. Um, And in neglecting parts of God's family, I neglect myself. The more I understand about my family, the more I actually understand and know myself. I realized that Jesus is willing to come to me and not just me because I'm a project or a missions trip kid. He's coming to me because I'm made in his image and I need to know that. I think that it's impossible to be faithful to the risen Jesus of scripture um, and not confront those barriers because that is what he came to do, to reconcile all things and all people to himself. Let's have the worship team come forward. Let me invite you to stand. We're going to take communion together. And I was thinking about entitling this message, Enter at Your Own Risk. Because to be part of this congregation means that we're going to wrestle with some things. 
We're going to go deep in some areas. We're going to have uncomfortable conversations. We're going to be in close proximity to people that we don't fully understand. Enter at your own risk. And if you choose to enter at your own risk and say yes to this invitation, which is what it means to follow Jesus, when Jesus said, follow me, he said, take up your cross, which is a way of saying, be willing to die. Enter at your own risk. And in a world that is increasingly, uh, the church is being co-opted in so many different ways, by different powers in this world, we're called to take up our cross, to enter at our own risk. This is not by uh, power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the reason why we can bear witness to be a different kind of community in this world is very simply because of what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus Christ dies for us. He pours out his life for us. He's raised on the third day. He ascends to the Father. He sends the Spirit to us so that we could be this chosen people, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, God's special possession in the world. And so when we come to the table of communion, we're saying, Lord, thank you for making this happen, for connecting people from all walks of life, not in a a sappy kind of sentimental way, but in a way that tears down barriers that the world erects. And so when you come for communion, for those of you who have said yes to Jesus Christ, for those of you who are following Christ, have received him, we want to invite you to come to the table. For those of you who have never said yes to Jesus, I have a hunch that the Holy Spirit is calling your name right now. I have a hunch that God is drawing you to himself. I have a hunch that God is calling you by name. He wants to save you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to forgive you. And the invitation is to turn your life to God. And that might be a simple prayer. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I want to follow you. And then remember that you can't follow Jesus alone. You need a root system. You need the body of Christ. Let me invite you to close your eyes for a moment. When we come to the table, we come as people grateful for the forgiveness of God and the grace of God. And we come as people confessing our sins, receiving cleansing that comes from God's mercy. I want you to think about, I want you to think about this past week. When did you fail to do the will of God? When did you hurt someone with your words, with your actions? Where are you struggling and you cannot shake a power that's greater than yourself? I want to invite you in this moment, first of all, to offer your own repentance and confession of sin to God in your heart. And if there's anyone that you're having difficult times just forgiving, that you would ask God to give you grace to move on the journey of forgiveness, that you would grieve well, that you would lament well, that you would hold on to the conflicting ways of anger, and you would, by God's grace, move towards forgiveness. Let me give you a moment just to confess your own sin, and then we'll confess together as a community, and we'll come to the table together. Let's take a moment. Let's pray this prayer confession. We'll have it on the screen. And when we pray it out loud, we're essentially saying, we're all messed up. We all need God's grace. We all need God's mercy. Let's pray this together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own faults, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses. 
and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Please come forward, dip bread in the cup, go back to your seat, and I'll lead us to receive it together. So Paul says these words. He says, For I passed on to you what I also received. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As the people of God, freely forgiven by the merciful love of Jesus, let's all receive together. ask the prayer team to come to my right today. There's just more space there to pray. 
We close our gatherings with a time of prayer for those who would like to receive it because life gets hard. And you often need someone to pray with you and pray for you. Maybe you came into church and the pace of life has been so overwhelming and you just need some breath to catch up. We want to pray for you. Maybe you came in here and there's been some stuff you've been wrestling with on the inside that maybe no one knows about and it's kept you in chains. We want to pray for you. Maybe you came in here and your marriage is really struggling. On the outside, everyone thinks everything is fine. But when you get home, you know the real story. We want to pray for you. Maybe you're single and you're just struggling. Maybe there's some areas of sexual brokenness that you want healing from. We want to pray for you. Maybe you need courage. You know God has called you to do some, th- some things, but you're really afraid and you need courage. We want to pray for you. And maybe you're wrestling with the re- realities of race. Maybe you're very discouraged. Maybe you're very angry. Maybe you're very confused. We want to pray for you. And finally, if you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, we want to pray for you. If you sense God calling you, something stirring in your heart, we want to invite you. Like, just like Vanessa said in her, in her testimony, when, when her hand went up, she knew something was just pulling her hand up. Maybe you, see, you feel that in your spirit today. And if that's your, that's rising up in you, our prayer team would love to pray for you. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. The reason we end this way is because the world is full of cursing and the world is full of manipulation and control. This is the posture of the world around us. But for those who belong to God and follow Jesus, we live open-handed, free to receive the gifts from God, out of which we offer ourselves as a blessing to this world. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And you may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the truth that Jesus is alive. And may you be deeply formed by his love and offer yourself as a gift to the world. I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. grace and peace to you all.